I didn't know what was underneath was a volcano getting ready to erupt. So, you know, looking back now, I can see that my whole life, I just lived on the surface of everything. And all the real stuff was shoved so far deep underneath that when I met her, I no longer could keep that cork in it. Everything erupted from every part of my life from the very beginning. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and today you're going to meet Eliana, who called me from Santa Cruz, California. Growing up, Eliana's family moved frequently, which taught her it was easy to uproot and restart. When her adopted brother triggered her search with his own desire to find his birth mother, Eliana got very emotional about her inability to locate the woman she wanted to find. Wishing and praying, their connection became reality, but Eliana could not have predicted the eruption of resentment she would feel when she moved in with her birth mother. Eliana was separated from her birth parents, broke ties with her adoptive parents, and reunited with everyone. This is Eliana's journey. Eliana was adopted at one month old. She has one older brother, also adopted. Their parents read them the adoption-related books the adoption agency provided, and the kids always knew they were adopted, though it wasn't a topic Eliana felt like they could talk about. Adoption wasn't a secret, but it wasn't discussed either. Eliana's adopted aunt once told her that back when she was three or four years old, young Eliana used to talk about her adopted mother a lot, which Eliana finds fascinating. She thinks she must have sensed the energy in her adoptive mother, so she stopped speaking about the mystery woman. Eliana's adoptive father was in sales, so they moved from home to home nine times before she was nine years old as her father took promotion after promotion. And then things kind of slowed down after that because he ended up changing jobs. But that was challenging, you know, to have my whole life upended every few years and start over. But, you know, the upside is you become really flexible. You become, I don't know what the word is, like you don't expect things to stay permanent, mm -hmm. which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, right. But it was what it was. And one of our second to last moves, we moved to Memphis. And that's where I met my best friend. I was nine when I met her. And she's coming out to visit on Sunday mm -hmm. with some of my other friends from that time in my life. So that was a great move for me. She was somebody that was permanent in my life. And her mother and father were super stable. So most of my childhood memories that are super positive are from spending time at her house. I spent all my time at their house. My parents were going through a really difficult time in Memphis in their marriage. and It was a really hard time for us emotionally at home. My mom went back to work. I found out later my aunt, my favorite aunt, um, spilled the beans that my mom was having an affair and during that time in Memphis. So I'm guessing that my dad found out about it. Mm -hmm. And that may have been part of you know, the upheaval that was going on at home. But it was a really hard time for me. So having my best friend and her solid family, I, I think it just kind of saved my life and gave me such a solid place to be. And my goal in life was to be her mother. That was all I ever wanted to do was to raise a family, stay home, cook, be the center of my family's world, you know, and that was her mom. So that was a very powerful time in my life. And my adopted dad talks so much about how he really regrets that move away from Southern California. We lived in Westlake Village and to Memphis and then to Chicago where he never moved away. So he feels kind of stuck in Chicago with the bad weather and all of that. And he says, why didn't I just stay in Westlake Village? And I always remind him, you know, my life really changed with that move. And it has impacted every part of my life. So if it makes you feel any better about your decision, it was a really positive thing for me. So hmm. that's, yeah, that's, that's kind really of my childhood in a, in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. 
So tell me about your family structure. Was it just you? And tell me a little bit about how you and your family got along. Yes. So I have a brother two years older. He was also adopted. Let's see. It was kind of a divided family in a sense in that I was closer to my dad than I was my mom. And my brother was closer to my mom than he was my dad. And so there was kind of this interesting dynamic. My brother and I really didn't get along very well. He was a teaser. He liked to tease me a lot. He would chase me around the house a lot and set up booby traps above his door and call me into his room and everything would fall on my head. And, you know, he would like sit on top of me and torture me and, you know, dunk me in the pool, all that stuff. He was very aggressive in his playing. Mm -hmm. And I always felt a little bit unseen by my parents that they allowed that, that they didn't step in. I mean, they may yell from the kitchen or whatever, and sometimes come in and say, okay, enough. But I really didn't feel protected as a child from all of that because it was it was hard to have an older brother be so aggressive with me as a younger sibling. I felt kind of helpless, mm-hmm. even though it was all, you know, somewhat play. I mean, he was structuring it as play, but you know, being held underwater is is traumatizing. Yeah, very scary. And yeah, so it was we didn't have a close relationship. And that was kind of sad, you know, that we couldn't really rely on each other to, to, we never talked about being adopted ever once. I don't think we've ever discussed it. It's not a topic that, yeah, we ever had. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't feel like we were close, you know? So yeah, it was just us two, you know, we moved around a lot. So it was just the two of us and my parents both came from Oklahoma. And so our vacations, you know, I don't know if you're like me, but we grew up in a time where vacations were driving to where your family lived. <laughs> right. And so we drove to Oklahoma when we lived close enough to do that. So, you know, we would be with our other family here and there, but not enough to build a real tight community. So it was just kind of our little foursome. And my dad traveled for a living, so he was gone a lot. So it was mainly just my mom and my brother. And it was a bit lonely until I met my friend, Kelly. And then I had an escape route and I could go over there. Right. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got along with your mom? You basically have indicated that your brother was closer to your mom and you Mm -hmm. were closer to your dad, but your dad was on the road all the time. So it was Mm -hmm. kind of the three of you at home. How did you and your mom get along? Well, that's a really interesting question because I actually don't have a lot of memories of time spent with my mom, although I know we must have spent a tremendous amount of time together because there wasn't a lot of after-school activity going on all the time. So when she was a stay-at-home mom when I was young, I just don't, I don't have a lot of memories of interacting with her. And I remember, you know, being a a teenager and a preteen, and I remember her really trying to be close to me and me just not wanting to be close to her. And that we were just so mismatched as personalities. And there was a lot of drinking in the house too. So by the time four o'clock would roll around and the cocktails would start, you know, her personality would change. And so that really kept us even at a further distance where maybe we could have bridged a road somewhere without that. But in my experience, you know, when you bring alcohol in the mix, it really, it just changes everything. And it made me feel even more unsafe. You know, unsafe was a word how I felt. I wasn't beaten by my parents. I wasn't neglected by my parents. You know, I was loved. But, you know, with my brother being aggressive and my parents drinking and fighting amongst themselves, not with me, I just didn't feel a lot of safety in my own home. So it was very hard for an outsider to see, like my best friend in Memphis. She never knew that I felt like that because it didn't show up to the public. It just looked like a normal family. But to me, I always felt like, okay, you know, it's nighttime now. My parents are going to start fighting and my brother's not a safe place for me to go. So I really got into the church when I lived in Memphis. We had a, we, for the first time, started going to church And the pastor at that particular church was a very spiritual man. He wasn't super just religious, but very spiritual. And I remember just thinking, oh, I can be safe here. 
And so I went to church. I joined the youth group. I had my parents just drop me at the door every time they had an event. So I kind of was at the church or Kelly's house through my Memphis years. And that kind of got me through from age nine to 13. That was my focus. And then we moved to Chicago. And by then I was getting older. And so I was out with my friends, you know, just in the neighborhood. And I was past that time when you're young and you feel like you're kind of trapped, you know, just in your home and it's harder to find an escape. Yeah. I'm wondering about your relationship with your mom and the fact that your aunt said that you talked about your birth mother when you were three or four. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I'm putting little pieces together in my mind and I'm thinking to myself, one, that you talked about your birth mother when you were very young and then, so there was some level of consciousness that there was this other person out there for you, even from a tender age. And then- Mm -hmm. You've talked a little bit about not being close to her seemingly naturally, like there was just a natural magnetism towards your father, and then he wasn't on, he was out on the road, and then she would begin to drink at night, and that would change her personality, which tends to spill over, right? It doesn't just, it's not confined to, you know, 4 to 8 p.m. when, Mm -hmm. you know, the drinks are flowing. It's how you're treated you know, once the drinks start all the way into the evening and when you go to bed and then you wake up in the morning and you think, I wasn't feeling how mom was behaving last night, how she treated me. And so it Mm -hmm. spills over into the rest of your life, which as I think you kind of alluded to, creates more distance, right? You don't want to be with somebody who mistreated you the night before or made you feel unsafe. So then you would put some distance between you. And I was, and I would imagine that part of that I don't have a lot of strong memories with my mom comes from that distance that you placed Mm -hmm. between the two of you. Is that roughly correct? Yeah. And the other wedge is, is that I was extremely close to my aunt, even though she didn't live near us. Mm -hmm. She was 15 years younger than my mom. So my mom was almost like a mother figure to her younger sister growing up. And my aunt was, I was extremely close to her. So whenever she was anywhere near me, I just wanted to spend all my time with her. And I think that all of that, my closeness to my dad, my closeness to my aunt, and my distance from my mom, I think it was very painful for my mother because all she ever wanted in her life was a child. You know, she wanted to be a mom, but, you know, just her own trauma or whatever caused her to make the choices she did in her life, we just could not create any kind of bond together. Mm -hmm. And it was a real sadness to her. I can remember her saying how she really wanted to be close to me. And that just, I was a teenager. And of course, I thought that was just horrendous that she said that. Right, right. You want to be close to me? Yuck. That's like basic <laughs> yeah, yeah. teenage 101. Like right. Saying that you want a relationship with your teenager will immediately get you excommunicated. Right. <laughs> yes. That was about it. Yeah. I was like, oh, please, I got to run out the door and close it as fast as I can. Since Eliana had thought about her birth mother in her very early years, but she couldn't talk about her adoption with her family. I wondered if she remembered thinking about the woman later in her teen years. Eliana said she never consciously thought about her until she was 17 when she started dating a boy. They only dated for a month, but they were incredibly close, and they would talk about everything for hours and hours. Their relationship was like nothing Eliana had experienced before. It's the first time I ever opened my soul up to, to anybody in that way. You know, it was... It was not a real super romantic relationship. It was just a really super deep one. And I can remember he's told me, you know, I talked, I've talked to him through the years since then. And he has told me that I talked a lot about my birth mother to him. So it's this kind of thing where I wasn't completely aware or coherent that that's what I was talking about. But it was such a big thing in my life somewhere deeply, deeply buried that only came out with my aunt and then with this first relationship. And otherwise, no, I never talked about it. I never really consciously thought about it. Wow. That is really interesting. And I, yeah, it's bizarre. That's, it's really interesting. And I'm wondering, you know, it sounds like this guy created a safe space for you to like an outlet, right? 
And he was different from your brother, who was doesn't sound like that outlet at all. Really, really interesting. Right. Hmm. He probably was the first male figure I had in my life that I felt 100% safe and seen by. Because my dad and my mom had a volatile relationship. So there was a little bit of fear that I had of my dad, even though he was always great to me. He wasn't always great to my mom. So there was always that kind of fear. And then my brother, of course, was, you know, this aggressive kind of sibling. And so this was the first male relationship I had in my life where I really felt like I was so deeply heard. Like everything I said, he really wanted to know. And I don't think I had ever experienced that before. So it was very validating to me. Eliana recalled that she was deeply hurt when she and the boy broke up and lamented for a very long time whatever she had done to push him away. As an adopted person with abandonment issues, their breakup wounded her deeply. Many years later, the young man admitted he had his own issues and the intensity of their relationship freaked him out. Finally, Eliana was able to let her hurt go. Eliana said she and her brother forged a closer relationship as adults. He married a woman who was also adopted, and she had made contact with her birth mother. After college, Eliana moved back in with her parents for a while before launching her life. One night, her brother and sister-in-law went over to their parents' house for dinner, where Eliana's brother told their parents he wanted to call his adoption agency to request his non-identifying information. It was like I got hit with a lightning bolt. Like I didn't even realize that was a possibility. It just never occurred to me that I had any rights or anything, that I could know anything about who I was. And I said, well, I want to do that. And my dad looked at me and he said, well, when you call, they may tell you that they sent a letter. They forwarded a letter from your birth mother to us when you were 17. And she said in the letter that she was open to meet you and that she lived in California. And at the time, you were getting ready to go off to college. And I was worried if I gave you the letter and told you this, you wouldn't go to college. and You would have dropped everything and moved to California to be with her. And so if you backtrack a tiny bit to when I was 17, my entire room, every surface of my room that could have a poster on it had either the bands of the 80s or the beaches of California. Mm -hmm. And so I was obsessed with California. I didn't know my birth mother lived in California. I was born in Oregon. So my dad seeing all of that, he saw how much I wanted to be there. I wanted to go to school in California and he refused to let me go to college in California. So I ended up going in Wisconsin instead. So he gets this letter and so it's not so far-fetched that he was worried about it because of my whole mindset that I wanted to be in California so badly. So I excused myself from the table. I went to the bathroom, closed the door and jumped up and down in just complete glee that I had never to that moment even thought about my birth mother wanting to get to know me or not wanting to get to know me. But it was like that door unlocked and all of a sudden I became completely aware that I had been holding on to all that fear of her not wanting to know me. And I just was not aware of it. So that just was able to evaporate, that fear of her rejecting me. And I was super excited. So I called the adoption agency the next day and filled out all the paperwork. And then they said, well, we have to double check with her that she hasn't changed her mind. So I said, okay, so I'm waiting, waiting. And they come back to me and they say, we can't locate her. She's not at the last known address. And we don't have any way to find her. We have no search consultants that work for us right now. And this is 1991. So it's a very difficult time to search for people compared to today's world. Mm -hmm. So they said, you're just going to have to wait for her to contact the adoption agency. So here comes my long traveling road down into adoption land of figuring out what I feel about all this, because it's been buried, really deeply buried my whole life. And now all of a sudden, it's open. Eliana moved out of her parents' home to live with her friends who were renting the second floor of an old Victorian home in downtown Chicago. Every day, she checked her mailbox and her answering machine to see if there was a message from the adoption agency saying her birth mother had called them. 
Eliana went to the library to find every resource she could about adoption, search, and reunion, but there weren't very many in the early 1990s. What Eliana did find at the library, she would read cover to cover. I spent a lot of time just crying in my room, and it was that whole coming out of the fog expression that I didn't know about then, where all of a sudden I became aware that I have all of these emotions that I don't understand. I don't know what it means, but I have just just an upwelling of emotion. It I didn't have words for what it was. It was just a lot. You know, you can imagine this for 22 years, everything's been buried. Yeah. And now it's just avalanching out of me everywhere. Yeah. And so about two years into my search, I was at work one day and I had my lunch hour and I called the adoption agency and I just broke down in tears. And I said, you know, I'm not doing well. Like I'm emotionally a, a wreck. And I need to find my mom. I feel like once I find her, I can start to put myself back together again. And I I need her. You know, is there anything you can do to help me? And I was just sobbing my heart out. I mean, it just breaks my heart to remember it. <laughs> and she said, the woman was really sweet on the other line from the adoption agency, and she really felt my pain. And she said, you know, there's nothing more we can do, but why don't you pray? And I thought, okay, I hung up the phone. I said, well, God, I've done everything else. Might as well try that. So I made this whole plan. You know, I lived in Chicago, so there's churches everywhere. So I got off on the train near a Catholic church, and I went to the church, lit a candle, said a prayer. A few days later in my apartment, I had come up with this whole, like, ceremony I was going to do. And I waited till sunset. I opened all my windows. It was a warm August night. And I lit all the candles in my apartment, and I put on this music, this acapella African chanting, beautiful music. And I had this little Japanese wish doll. I don't know if you've ever seen these little paper mache round. They look like samurais. They're red and white. And the, the legend goes in Japan that you draw in one eye, and when it comes true, you draw in the other. And my friend's dad had gone to Japan a few years earlier and brought it back for us. And so I wasn't going to waste my one wish doll on like some stupid wish. So I had held on to it until I had a wish big enough to use this special doll. So I bought a special pen and I held that doll and I drew in that eye and I wished with every fiber of my being that my birth mother would call the adoption agency. And I just sat and cried and held on to that doll until it got really dark in my apartment and and that was it. I let go of it. And then I, I just decided, okay, I'm not going to just spend every day in my apartment reading these books, crying myself to sleep, not going out with anybody. So a few days later, some friends from work invited me out to dinner. It was the first time I said yes to anything in a long time. So I said, yeah, sure. I'll, I'd love to go out. So we went out to dinner. I came home that night. This is like maybe four days, four or five days after that ceremony. I go into my apartment and there's a note on the phone that says, Sharon, your birth mother called you. And oh my God, I just fell on the ground. I, my legs gave out. I started bawling. I thought, oh my gosh, I can't call her like this. I'm, I'm a disaster. <laughs> I've got to be able to talk. So I had to kind of wait. You know, I was shaking so badly I couldn't even function. So I had to wait about 10 or 15 minutes, finally calm down. So I called and I talked to my grandmother. She was the only one home. My, my mom and grandmother had bought a ranch together in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and they lived together. And my birth mother was horse camping that night, and just my grandmother was home. So she was the first person that I talked to in my family, and she had this sweet little voice, and she was so kind. And of course, I don't remember one thing that we said. I wish I had taken notes, but I have no recollection of what we talked about. <laughs> And then the next morning when Sharon got home, she called me and it was like a love affair. You know, we talked every day for hours and hours and hours. And she sent photo albums of her life and it was magical. You know, that first few weeks was just the biggest honeymoon period I could ever imagine. I was just on cloud nine. Really unbelievable. And then tell me about your emotions leading into that call for you to call her back. I just remember 
being so excited. Like I've never been that excited in my life about anything. I can't imagine that feeling with any other circumstance in my life. I've never felt that way again. Yeah. It was an, an indescribable joy and elation that was so deep in my soul that I just, I can't describe it. I'm guessing that it was how my daughter felt when I gave birth to her and she looked at me for the first time, we locked eyes and she beamed this smile from the depth of her soul when she first <laughs> saw me. And I have a feeling that that's the same feeling that I had. That's really funny because the same way your daughter came out and saw you, you are now getting your first, even though it was an audio glimpse into who your birth mother would be. And it's okay. fascinating that you draw that parallel between your birthing experience and this reconnecting experience with your with your birth family. That's really interesting. Eliana and her birth mother talked all the time during their early reunion. Before they found one another, Eliana's lease was ending with her roommates in the home they shared. She was on a new trajectory to join the Peace Corps, exit her old life, and start something new. Eliana didn't make any plans to renew her lease because she knew she was leaving, but Eliana also failed to plan where she was going to live in the interim before her Peace Corps departure. And my birth mother said, why don't you come and live with us while you're waiting to get sent to wherever you're going to be in the Peace Corps? So I decided in a split second to uproot my life and move in with my birth mother wow. and get to know her and her mother. So now I had to break the news to my parents, which I was terrified. So I told them, you know, I'm going into the Peace Corps and I have just probably a few months. So I'm just going to move there and get to know her before I leave. So that's kind of how I worded it. So it wouldn't have been so painful for them. And I thought it was the truth. It didn't turn out to be that way. I didn't end up going into the Peace Corps. I ended up moving in with my birth mother and basically having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> So, oh my gosh, really? Not, oh my gosh. Yeah. I think that when you uproot your life to live with somebody else, I mean, you hear this all the time with relationships, with romantic relationships. You change everything, you move in with that person, and it falls apart. I mean, that's a really common scenario in the, in the world. And then you pile on the adoption trauma and all of this buried emotion on both sides. And I moved here with no life, no friends, no nothing outside of this time and this space with my birth mother. I had no other place to escape my emotions. I was in it 24-7. And so I moved in with her. And right away, I started seeing the pictures of her life without me. And, you know, she was in Yosemite. And then she was in the Caribbean. And she was doing all this traveling. She was in Africa. And I it just triggered all of my hurt, all my grief, all my resentment that, yeah, you had this great life because you didn't have, you weren't a single parent raising a daughter. You know, this is, you were free to do whatever you wanted to do. And I was so taken aback by my anger because I was one of these people who was so even keeled, always in a good mood, always happy. You know, I had my dark days here and there, but I was never upset with anybody really, except my brother, but I was a pretty happy kid and never really experienced anger. I'm sure I had a bunch of it just buried way down deep inside that I wasn't aware of, you know, story of my life. You're hearing this recurring theme. <laughs> and so to meet my birth mother and have all this anger come out, I, I had no idea how to deal with it. She had no idea how to deal with it. We were both blindsided by it. I'm sure she was hurt by it. It was extremely difficult, to yeah. say the least. How did you express your anger? You've used the words nervous breakdown. You've talked about being angry, but you're there in her home. How did that look? It was interesting because we had this like wonderful relationship during the times when I could kind of hold everything together. And then we, you know, we would talk, we would laugh. We had lots of good times together, but then something would trigger it. I, I mean, it would just be something silly. Like one time she was getting a plate out for herself for dinner. We were going to eat and she didn't get me a plate and it just triggered all of that. And I just 
started bawling. And I had no control over these emotions. They just would come out of me. And I don't know if you've ever heard anybody talk about this. I haven't heard a lot of people talk about it, but it is something that happened to me that I regressed emotionally. I was like a child again. I went back to like a very, very young, like almost like baby stage. Like I wanted to be held by her. I wanted to lay on her stomach. I Just the same things my babies did. I wanted to be as close to her as humanly possible. And so, you know, she was like, okay, fine. You want to lay on me? I don't care. And so she would let me do all of these things. And then I would kind of go through these stages where then I felt like I was a toddler and then I felt like I was older and, you know, and it was bizarre. I felt like I was going crazy, but I, I feel like because I had nowhere else to be, no other life to go to, I just had this life and I was so open to healing, whatever it took. And she was open to whatever it took to, to heal me. So we were reading a lot of books about all of this. I was in therapy. So we were very open to whatever the process needed to be. And so all this weird stuff started coming out, you know, this regression in age and it was bizarre and it was not comfortable, but I felt like, okay, for some reason I have to go through this. I, I don't know why I have to go through this, but I, I would get up in the morning, I would go to work, I'd hold it all together. And then I'd come home at night and we'd have perfectly nice evening doing this or that. And then some nights I didn't get triggered by anything and other nights I would and I'd have a panic attack. And I'm with somebody who didn't have a history of anxiety and didn't know how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So I started doing EMDR and therapy and then that like completely eradicated the panic attacks, which was great because those were horrific. It was just bizarre. This, this is really interesting. I have heard other adoptees talk about sort of, and I don't know what the term is, but this adult adoptee sort of regression to childhood and needing to be held and needing to be comforted. And it almost sounds like reaching back to a piece of what you didn't have with your birth mother and trying to gather it back. And and I don't get the impression that it's unhealthy either. I think that a lot of people feel this need to be comforted and loved and very close to, you know, I've heard other adoptees talk about sort of wanting to lay down in the bed next to their birth mother, like just wanting to feel that closeness mm -hmm. that I think would come very naturally. You know, you can probably remember when your daughter was born, like you just wanted to snuggle her up all the time. And oh, I have three kids and mm -hmm. we had a family bed because I didn't get that, right? Right. So I let my kids sleep with me mm -hmm. and they were all over me forever and ever. I thought they would never leave my bed. Mm -hmm. And so I see that it's totally natural. And maybe I was a little bit on the other end because I didn't have that. So I did let my kids sleep with me for a long time. Mm-hmm but I needed that as much as they needed that. So I do see that it's normal and natural, but it's certainly bizarre when you're an adult and you feel that way about a stranger. It's a very weird feeling. Mm -hmm. it, it really took me by surprise. Yeah, I'll bet it did. I'll bet it did. Can you tell me, let's go back for a moment because we sort of went past the part where you actually moved from Chicago to the California area where she lived. Tell me about your your anticipation of this move. Like, you don't just move in a day. You're just like, all right, I'm out tomorrow. Like, there's a buildup to it. You have to pack. You have to decide what date you're moving. And, and then there's the actual physical trip of going there to make this move. Can you lead me in? And, and before you even answer that, just tell me, did you meet her before this move? Yes, I did. So take me to your first to... meeting. Tell me a little bit okay. about your very first meeting before you moved in with her, please. Okay. Well, we had this honeymoon phone calls, you know, for probably a month or so. We talked every day for hours and hours and it was like falling in love. You know, I was just totally in love with her and so excited to meet her. But I felt like I didn't want to meet her in my home turf. I felt like I had to kind of put an armor on to be who I was where I lived. And I didn't really want her to meet that person. I wanted her to meet me without all the armor. I wanted her to meet the real me who I didn't even know who that was yet, but I knew it wasn't who I was in my hometown. So we decided both to meet at my best friend's house in Memphis. So we both moved or not moved. We both flew there 
and I flew a few days before her. So I can remember vividly waiting for her at the airport gate and seeing, cause I've seen pictures of her now. So I know what she looks like. And she walks off of the jetway and comes into the gate area. And I see her for the first time. And I expect it to be like our phone calls, just massively in love with each other and just running to each other, hugging each other. And I go totally numb. The shields come down and I feel absolutely nothing. Numb, numb, numb. I don't feel happy. I don't feel sad. You could have poked me with a knife. I probably wouldn't have even felt it. Wow. And I was so disappointed in myself that I had waited so long for this. And yet I couldn't be an active participant in it. My, my mind shut down. And she had brought presents for every birthday that she had missed. And they were really thoughtful things wow. like some family heirlooms, things her dad had brought home from the war, you know, th really thoughtful things, things that she grew up loving, her father's cufflinks that he used to wear. And then she wrote me a birthday card for every year that she missed my birthday. Wow. And I was in overwhelm and I, I tried to be appreciative and, you know, say all the right things, but I was on automatic. I was not feeling anything except when we would look in the mirror and we'd see like, oh, our belly buttons look the same or our pinkies look the same. Like I could be present for that piece of it, the physical parts that look the same. That was exhilarating. But any of the emotional parts, I was checked out. And so she was there for four days and we did, I did the best I could to, to, to make this reunion as special as I could handle it to be. And then she left and, and I was just shaking my head like, okay, I, I have no idea what's going on. Like, this is so weird. I've never felt like this in my life. I'm in uncharted territory. And it's the 90s. It's not like there's people that you can, you know, look up on the internet and read about. I mean, I am alone in this. Mm -hmm. There is nobody I can turn to. There is nobody I can talk to that has any idea what I'm going through. So I feel like I'm just weird. Like, this is just bizarre. I, I don't know why I'm like this. It's so fascinating to sort of hear this. I couldn't help thinking of like a deer in headlights. Like, mm -hmm. there's the... And I'm I'm not clinically trained, so I don't know all of the psychological or terms or psychiatric terms or whatever. But I know there's fight, flight, or freeze, and I think there's one more. Fawn, like where you kind of make Bambi eyes at your uh, person to not hurt you. Yes, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And okay. it sounded like you froze. This was I all froze. I could come. What was that's the only thing that came to my mind. And it's so interesting that it wasn't just a freeze in the moment of her walking off the jetway, but there was a long freeze, it sounds like, mm -hmm. an emotional freeze through her multi-day visit with you that is also kind of fascinating. It didn't thaw out for you. It continued. And and that's, you know, this sounds like sort of a traumatic response, right, mm -hmm. to what you've been introduced to, this missing person in your life whom you've been so emotional about trying to find for years and then finally finding her falling completely head over heels in love with her. But then you see her face to face and you just freeze like all emotions just stop. Really, mm -hmm. really interesting to see that that's how it ended up happening. And then you end up deciding that you want to move in with her. That's really incredible. Yeah, I did. I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And so if you back up my story to my childhood, I am very good at pulling up stakes and moving, right? I did it my whole childhood. Uh, so I go home. I'd already sold my car before I met her because I took the train everywhere in the city. And my car was just this expensive car payment that I didn't need. So I didn't have a car anymore. And I didn't own a lot. I was in my early 20s. So I just packed everything up into four suitcases and I left. I mean, I didn't think twice about it. I never had any any piece of me saying, maybe you should think about this, or maybe you should put the brakes on a little bit, nothing like that, just full steam ahead, even though I had that moment being totally frozen. When I met her, I thought for sure that when I lived with her, that it wouldn't be like that, you mm -hmm. know, whatever's underneath will be able to come out and it will be beautiful. Well, I didn't know what was underneath was a volcano getting ready to erupt. Mm -hmm. So, you know, looking back now, I can see that 
my whole life, I just lived on the surface of everything. And all the real stuff was shoved so far deep underneath that when I met her, I no longer could keep that cork in it. Everything erupted from every part of my life from the very beginning, you know, from her having to relinquish me, never holding me, never seeing me. And I'm in the hospital for three weeks in an incubator and probably not being held or touched much all the way back to that wounding. You know, I had all of that in there and then my family and trouble connecting my brother and all his stuff and my parents and all their drinking. I mean, that's a lot for one human being to have stuff down in there that they've never let any release valve out before of any kind. Yeah. And so when it went, it went big. And it's interesting too, just to hear you talk about how, I don't know if this is the right words, but basically you were trained from a young age to up and move like nine moves before nine years old. You learned that it's very easy to just uproot, move and start over. And so Mm -hmm. it's fascinating as you expressed it, that you just, you had already sold your car and it was very easy for you to just pick up, uproot and move. When they first met, Eliana's birth mother, Sharon, shared some of her backstory involving Eliana's birth father. Sharon met this fun-loving, preppy young guy in college, but in the late 1960s, he went down the route of drug consumption, which had overtaken many young people during that period. Eliana's birth mother broke up with the guy. He got angry at the news that she didn't want to be with him anymore, and he went to see Sharon. Then, he took advantage of her. When she found out she was pregnant, She told the young man, confessing that she was scared to return home to her parents because her dad was going to freak out. And abortions were illegal then, unless she went to Mexico, but she had heard so many horror stories about the abortions in Mexico. And they'd been legal in Japan, I guess, for many, many years, which I didn't realize. And so she said, can we raise the money to fly me to Japan so I can get an abortion there? And he had a sports car. So he was going to sell the car and use that money to fly her to Japan to get an abortion. So they had a buyer, and on the way to deliver the car, a deer jumped out in front of the car and wrecked the car. And so no longer could she do that. So now she has the reality of, I've got to go home and tell my parents. So she tells her dad, he freaks out, he kicks her out of the house. So she ends up staying with some friends in Hawaii for a while which is where she chose my name, which is Eliana. Eliana is my first name, not the name I grew up with. And then she went and lived with her sister who lived in Oregon at the time because she knew that that's where she was going to be when she gave birth to me. And she went into labor early. So I was six weeks early and there was no birth plan yet. She hadn't met with the adoption agency yet. She thought she had time. So I, I was just, you know, born and there was no plan for me. So They had to kind of hurry up and bring on board the Boys and Girls Aid Society of Oregon, who was my adoption agency. So they got involved and they said that I was healthy and I wasn't in the hospital for health reasons, but because they had no place to put me at that point, because the paperwork hadn't even started at the adoption agency to even get me into foster care. So it took a few weeks and then they finally got me into foster care, which I wasn't in very long. And then I went to my parents. So so when I met my birth mother, she's telling me all of this. And she says, and I've kept in touch with your birth father all these years. You know, we've talked about you and talked about if we found you, you know, would he want to meet you? And he said he would. And she said, it just so happens that a year ago I made reservations to stay in like recreational cabins in Hawaii. And so you have to make the uh, reservations a year ahead because they fill up so fast because it's really cheap accommodations in Hawaii. You know, it's rustic cabins kind of way out in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So she had these and she said, it's happening 10 days after you move here is when the trip is supposed to happen. And I have two tickets with my points and I didn't know who I was going with. And it's going to the island where your birth father lives. And I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Like, this is fate, right? So I move here 10 days later, we get on the plane and we fly to the first island, which is not his island. We, We went there first for a few days. So then we are talking to him on the phone, trying to finalize him picking me up at the airport the next day, meeting us. And 
he's freaking out because he's not told his current girlfriend of 20 years that he ever had a baby with this other woman that she knows from high school and never liked. And so there's this kind of like he was never good at facing adversity and facing challenges and whatever, you know, hence his drug use for coping. Uh So now he's trying to backpedal and not come to the airport. And I start bawling and she's like, no, you've made her cry. And he's like, oh, no, no, let me talk to her. So I talked to my birth father for the first time on the phone and I'm crying because he doesn't want to come to the airport to meet me. And he says, no, 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 I'll come. I'll come. I, you know, he feels really bad. So he comes in his, actually, I think we got a rental car is what happened. So we got our rental car and we drive, he lived kind of off the grid on the big Island. And I can remember first meeting him and I didn't feel like I looked a lot like my birth mother, but I really felt like I looked like my dad. Wow. And so when I first saw him, I have his eyes and eyebrows. And I don't know if you've seen a picture of me, but I have pretty substantial eyebrows. Mm -hmm. And I've been asked my entire life by strangers of all walks of life where I got my eyebrows. And I finally got to see where my eyebrows came from. I mean, it was amazing, right? And I don't have all this wounding with my dad. I don't have the relinquishment trauma with him. Mm -hmm. So I can just get to know him. It's like a totally different relationship. I don't have all that baggage. And so it was really interesting to stand next to him and look at our feet and see if our toes are the same and, you know, just hear his laugh. And it, it filled me with a lot of joy to meet my birth father. And, and we had a great Is she there at the same time? Your birth mother's standing yes. there too? Wow. She's standing there too. And we, in the rental car, he's driving and she's in the front seat and I'm in the back seat. And I'm like, okay, this is really weird. Like, this is what it would have been like had this been a different reality. It was very bizarre. <laughs> so we stayed bizarre. for, wow. yeah, it was bizarre. <laughs> it was really bizarre. But I had a great reunion with him and, you know, we would just talk here and there. It was very touch and go. I didn't see him a lot. He would come over. His family was in Sacramento, huge Sicilian family. So I became very close to his family and still am very close to his family in Sacramento, mainly his sister and some cousins. And so when he'd come over for the holidays, either I'd go up there or he'd come down here. And we remained very close until a couple of years ago. And then he is married to a woman that she just kind of had him pull away from the family. And so, but his memory is starting to go. So even before he pulled away from us, he wasn't really the same person anymore. You know, he was kind of in and out of himself. Hmm. So I felt like I really did get the best of him. And I got to really spend some wonderful time with him. And I don't regret any of it. I'm, I'm thrilled that I had him in my life in That's any amazing. manner that I could have had him and that I still have the whole rest of his family which is amazing. One thing I I didn't tell you is that his mother was still alive when I came here. So I had both grandmothers on both sides in my life for many years. They both lived to be like 92. And so I think it was, you know, 12 to 15 years of of having my grandparents, which is a, a real blessing because you don't have the trauma with them. So I could have these wonderful relationships with them and learn a lot of things from them. Mm-hmm. And that was really valuable to me. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It sounds really incredible. I mean, just the notion that your birth mother has already got a trip planned to the same place, Eliana, where your birth father lives. And she's like, I've got tickets if you want to go. I mean, I will take you to meet this man. Like, there are so, you know, this, there are so many adoptees out there who struggle to even get a name of their birth father from their birth mother. And your birth mother, Sharon said, come on, let's go. And I'll take you to him. I mean, that is astonishing. Really, really incredible. And she has this huge trauma with him. Mm -hmm. How the birth happened. You know, I've told her so many times how much I respect how she handled that. Yeah. And that she didn't let her emotions get in the way. She always allowed me my own relationship with him. Because she believed that underneath all that, he was a wonderful human being. He just got sidetracked from the drugs. And so I really commend her on being able to let go of her own stuff with him enough to allow me 
to really flourish with my relationship with him. Mm-hmm. That was very special. And and I, I, I sometimes still look at her in awe of what I put her through. I mean, I was really mad at her for a long time mm-hmm. and really resentful for a long, long time. And she never left my side and she never stopped believing in me and never stopped hoping that one day it would be different. And that's amazing. It really is. It really is. Because it could have been so easy to give up, right? You could just say, listen, I didn't even know this person, you know, before now. And I didn't know it was going to be this hard. And I'm out. I don't need this. I'm too old for this, you Mm -hmm. know, whatever. But she wanted you so much that despite the relinquishment when she was younger, she wanted to welcome you back. And she was willing to work through it with you and let you have your freeze, let you have your anger and just be there in the hopes that by staying, it would signal to you that you were together again and you weren't, didn't have to go anywhere. That's really unreal. You know, when I first met her, I told her that I had some childhood memories of her in my mind when I was young. I used to think about her as a young woman with long brown hair parted down the middle with a really sad face sitting in a field of yellow flowers, looking really sad because she's missing me. And she was like, oh my God. And she went and got this picture of her. And it was about, it was taken about the time that I'm talking to my aunt when I'm three or four about my birth mother. It was about that time. And she has long brown hair parted down the middle, looking really sad, sitting in a field of sunflowers. What? And I was... I could not believe it, that I was so connected to her at that time in my life, that young time, even though we were separated by thousands of miles and had never met each other. Somehow we had this connection. Wow, that's really unbelievable. That's crazy. You must have been floored when you saw literally this imagined image of your birth mother there in her hand as a picture of herself from younger years. That must have been crazy. Oh, I have it blown up and framed in my house. I mean, it was that magical to me. (laughs) Yeah, because quite literally, like as a child, you know, you've imagined some amazing things. But to have one actually come to life, I would imagine that is worthy of being blown up. That's crazy. You know, there's so much about my story that just, I just have to, to allow it to be something that I can't understand. When Eliana was deciding on what college to attend, her adoptive father forbade her from going to school in California because he was worried that she would get sidetracked by a connection to her birth mother. After college, Eliana found her birth mother and did more than connect with her. She moved in with Sharon. I was really curious about how Eliana discussed her time with Sharon and her birth father with her adoptive parents. So many times when we're going through stress and emotional duress, we call home to those whom we feel safe with, like our parents. I asked Eliana how she shared that part of her life with her parents. I struggle to remember if I have ever told my adoptive parents that I've met my birth father. I don't think I ever told them. I don't remember. So when I moved here to California, I would make myself call my parents every Sunday. I had to force myself to call them every Sunday. And I could just hear the anger in my dad's voice. And even though my dad and I had a closeness, I was scared of that anger. And he was starting to get really angry with me because sometimes I wouldn't call or whatever. And I was starting to kind of feel as I was getting into therapy and uncovering so much of my childhood I was feeling like it was impossible for me to become who I really am when I have their energy in my life. And so one time I didn't call him for a few weeks and he left some very angry voicemails on my phone. And I just snapped and I said, that's it. I'm completely done with these people. I want them out of my life. I want to just heal. I want to be safe. I want to be able to be who I really am without this constant fear of hurting these people, of them being angry at me. And I, I, want, I want it all gone. And so I wrote them a letter and I said, because of the drinking and all of the anger and all the things that have happened, I need to step away 
from you guys in my life. I need to have complete break of contact. And I sent the letter. And I didn't talk to my parents for 10 years. Oh my gosh, wow. And then I got married, I had children, and my birth father came out one time to visit. And he was saying, have you talked to your parents? And I said, no, I haven't talked to them in years. And he said, you know, I have a lot of friends who cut off contact with their parents for one reason or another, whether it was really a valid reason or not. And then their parents died and they were left holding that and they couldn't really get over it. And you might want to just revisit that. He said, you know, maybe they weren't perfect, but they were there. I wasn't there. I didn't do the job they did. So even if they didn't do the best job, they were there for you. Maybe you can just honor that. And I really thought about his words. And it took me another year or two after that. And then I wrote him a letter. And I apologized to them for cutting them out of my life and allowed them to make the first move. If they wanted to reenter my life, I was open to it. And I left my phone number. And the second they got the letter, they called me. Oh. And they said, we forgive you and we want to see you. Can we fly out like next week or whatever? And so they got on a plane and they came out and they just forgave me, you know, and just, they said, we knew you were going through a hard time and we don't understand it, but and we were really hurt, but we forgive you and we want you back in whatever way we can have you and as much of you as we can have and as much of your family as you'll share with us. Mm. And it was amazing. And we built a very beautiful relationship. My adopted mom has since passed. And I have to say, by the time she died, we had built a relationship where we would spend hours on the phone talking to each other about every little thing, not super deep things, but fun things and just what's going on in our life. And we developed a good relationship. And it was very healing for both of us. Mm. That's and my adopted dad is still alive and I talk to him every week and I go out to see him or he comes out here to see me and he's lived long enough for us to have time alone without my adopted mom and for our bond to grow now because we don't have her in the middle feeling badly that she doesn't have that connection with me. Mm -hmm. And so my dad and I have gotten a lot closer and it's been just a fantastic reunion with them. So I've kind of had a few different parental reunions yeah. in my life. That's really cool. Wow. And, you know, the notion that they were so interested in having you back that with immediacy and expeditiously they wanted to jump on a plane and come out to see you is really a testament to how much they missed you and how much they had already forgiven you for what they had put you through. And it sounds like they realized a little of their own insensitivity like the fact that they said we don't understand it but we forgive you they thought about it quite a bit it sounds like over those 10 years that you okay. were apart from each other and and it's really cool that when the moment came to reconnect with you they didn't revert back to anger but they said let's put this behind us and let's go forward and you guys all move forward together that's incredible yeah and i think they changed. I think their drinking and fighting and all of that, it didn't go away, but the intensity of it completely changed. Mm. And then, you know, they wouldn't do or say things to me anymore that made me really feel like I had my hackles up because I would say like, I, I don't want to go out to dinner with you if you're going to make us change tables five times. Cause my dad was just horrible when we would go out to eat. <laughs> And I said, if you're going to do that, I won't go with you. And he knew from me saying goodbye to him for 10 years that I meant it. This wasn't just me threatening to not be with him. This was me saying, this is my boundary. Mm -hmm. And if you cross this, I will not be with you. And so he understood that. And I still, when he comes out to visit, I always give him this warning before we go out to eat. And I say, I don't want to hear you complain about anything in the restaurant, the lighting, the waitress, the food, mm -hmm. the table nothing. And if you complain about stuff, that's it. We're not going to go out anymore. Mm -hmm. And then he's fine. And then he's great. We have this great time when we're out, you know, but he has to have that disclaimer because he's got those habits built up. Yeah. And so it's been really good for me to be able to see that I can set boundaries with people. It's okay to ask what I need. I'm still working on it. You know, I still 
need help with it as we all do, but I'm learning how to say what I need. That's awesome. Yeah. That's super important. We all have work to do to end. And it's this life is a growth process every single day. You're different than the day you were before. And it sounds like you've grown a lot through your anger with your birth mother, through your anger with your adoptive family to accepting everybody. I mean, Eliana, it really just sounds like you've reached a really solid place of healing and recovery after all of it. And it's amazing to hear. Well, you, as you know, you know, I went through breast cancer last year. Mm, that's right. That I was still in a pattern of resentment up until that diagnosis. And that's when I rediscovered Louise Hay. If you know anything about Louise Hay from like the 90s, she was one of the first people that was talking about mind-body connection. Mm -hmm. And I listened to an audiobook of hers called Cancer, and she had healed herself from cancer. And she talks about the root of cancer being long-held resentment, especially from our parents. And of course, I had it everywhere, right? Resentment of parents everywhere. And so I worked really hard. She had a great meditation in that book about letting it go. And having cancer is probably the best thing that ever happened to me because I was able to completely let go of that old resentment that I had been working on getting rid of since I met my birth mother 30 years ago. And I just could not get rid of the last of it. I mean, there's still days that it creeps back up, but for the most part, it's gone. And it's like this monkey on my back is off. And so. It's funny how people say having cancer can be one of the best things that happens to you. And for me, it certainly was. Mm -hmm. Wow. Unbelievable. That's inspiring to hear that you were able to take such medical adversity and turn it into a positive thing. Not everybody can say that. People get really resentful of something that, that has happened to them. And yet another sort of positive thing that you've done for yourself. And I heard you say earlier how you were always a positive person and and I can hear that now in its entirety throughout your entire journey. There's, you know, a lot of signals of you being positive and trying to get through things. And I think it's wonderful. And I'm so glad you were here to share this, Eliana. It was really great. Yeah, this, you know, talking through a lot of this with you has helped me connect dots that I didn't even have connected before. And it's amazing, you know, when you talk this in depth mm -hmm. about this kind of journey, because not many people ask you, you know, this in depth about your story. Yeah. And so I don't often spend time connecting all this together. And so it's just been amazing and so wonderful to have your interest and mm -hmm. your questions, because it's really helped me to piece together things that I didn't even necessarily knew went together. Oh, that's fascinating. This is, this is why I like to do this. Because as adoptees, we don't necessarily get the time or the interest from anybody in our lives to hear the entire story. I've had people ask me about my adoption journey, and I, I can feel myself immediately going into several calculations. How close am I to this person such that I need to tell them the entire in-depth tear-jerking story, or am I just close enough to them that it'll be interesting for them to know I found my birth mother around the corner and we went to the same college and she mistook my birth father and like I found the real guy. Are we close enough that they get everything or are, are they just kind of a superficial, you know, not super close person? And then how much time do we have? Which is what I try to provide people here is at least an hour to let's just talk about everything and let me satisfy some of my curiosities and I want to pull some emotions out of you and understand what you were thinking of. And that doesn't happen either. Like if you're at a cocktail party, if you're at, you know, a work event or if you're somewhere where it's just not conducive to stand for one hour and chat with somebody about the entirety of your adoption journey, there's so many ways that an adoption journey won't come out in its fullest form because of these calculations that I felt myself doing. Is this the right person to share everything? Is this enough time to tell everything? You know, do I feel like going into all of my emotions? Cause I know when I get to that part where mom said this or this happened, I'm going to cry. Do I feel like I can cry right now and feel, you know, safe and not be embarrassed and all that other stuff. There's so much calculus that goes into us telling our own stories. This is part of why I like to do this because you don't have to give the elevator version. 
You don't have to be shy about being emotional. And it's a safe space to be vulnerable and for us to talk about what it means to be adoptees from our various perspectives. So I'm so glad you were here to do this with me, Eliana. And I'm glad that you you just provide such a safe space. It was just an honor. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm glad you're in recovery after breast cancer, too. That's really awesome. Oh, yeah, I'm great. Super healthy. So that's awesome. Love it. Eliana, thank you so much for being with me here. I appreciate you. And I don't know if you remember, Damon, but you and I share the same birthday. Oh, my gosh. That's you. Oh, wow. That's That's amazing. Yeah, that's me. So I will think of you on my birthday. And I will think of you, Eliana. Take care. All the best, okay? Thank you so much. All right. You too. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's me. Eliana said she grew up feeling unsafe and disconnected at home with her parents' drinking and her older brother's aggression. She said the trigger for her search was her adopted brother's own desire to search, which led her to the point of wishing on a special ritual doll and praying with every fiber of her being for her birth mother to find her again. Incredibly, Eliana's birth mother, Sharon, offered her a home, showed patience and grace through Eliana's anger and resentment, and set up Eliana's reunion with her birth father. It was tough to hear that Eliana cut ties with her adoptive parents, but she was setting boundaries for herself that became the foundation for further boundaries to be clearly understood when she reunited with her adoptive parents after a 10-year break. Eliana is a positive person who has had a lot of parental reunions in her life, has let go of resentment, and is healing emotionally and physically as she presses forward on her life's journey. Oh, and one more thing, this episode is coming out on Eliana's birthday, October 14th, so I hope you'll join me in wishing Eliana a very happy birthday. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you found something in Eliana's journey that inspired you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? If you would like to share the story of your adoption and your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can follow me on Instagram at Damon L. Davis and follow the podcast at Really. If this show is meaningful to you, please take a moment to leave a five-star review and a brief comment wherever you get your podcasts. I read every comment to stay connected with how you're feeling about the show.